This is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Um. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR. We interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region, particularly with a view to informing U.S. policy and businesses. For the month of August, we will continue to release the recorded public sessions from the Asia Policy Assembly, a major policy conference organized by NBR and the National Defense University. This is the third of five recorded sessions we're releasing. In this episode, we feature a discussion about trends in trade, investment, and finance. Amy Selico moderates the session with Dr. Thomas X. Hamas, Ms. Claire Reed, and Dr. Michael Beckley. Let me introduce these participants. Amy Selico is a principal of the Albright Stone Bridge Group, leading the firm's China team. She previously served as Senior Director for China Affairs at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative and developed trade policy positions with the U.S.-China Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade. She also served as Deputy Director of the Office of the Chinese Economic Area at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Dr. Thomas X. Hamas is a Distinguished Research Fellow at National Defense University's Center for Strategic Research. His areas of expertise include future conflict, military strategy, and insurgency. Dr. Hammett served for 30 years in the U.S. Marine Corps and participated in military operations in Somalia and Iraq. Claire Reed is a senior counsel at Arnold & Porter, providing clients strategic counsel and assistance with major regulatory issues in the U.S. and China. She previously served as Assistant U.S. Trade Representative for China Affairs and Chief Counsel for China Trade Enforcement at USTR. Dr. Michael Beckley is an Associate Professor of Political Science at Tufts University. He previously worked for Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, the U.S. Department of Defense, the Rand Corporation, and the Carnegie Endowment for Peace. Dr. Beckley's research on U.S.-China relations has received numerous awards from the American Political Science Association and the International Studies Association. As you can see, we have a terrific panel of experts with a wide range of experience in forming, shaping, and executing Asia policy. In this discussion, TX, Claire, and Michael highlight the reverse trends in globalization, discuss U.S.-China trade and investment developments, and analyze Chinese economic stagnation and its ensuing effects on Chinese security policy. So, without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Asia Insight. I have to say, of course, the topic of this panel may not have been much interest to a strategic discussion of the U.S. and Asia in years past, but this year, today, we're in the bullseye. So one of the most significant trends from my very narrow perspective from Albright Stonebridge Group, where I'm advising American and European companies on navigating, operating in the China market, is, of course, the bleeding of national security into economic policy making across the board. This has had a significant prospective impact on American competitiveness, on the global economy, and of course on our security. In the US, this overlay of national security on economic policy making is of course seen in the enhanced CFIUS investment uh, screening review processes, the enhanced export control processes now underway at the Commerce Department, and the use of tariffs, not just against China, but against our closest allies to protect our national security. Of course, in China, national security has been intertwined with economic policy making for years. China's new cybersecurity law could limit foreign investment in major swaths of the Chinese economy. China is now, for the first time, drafting an export control law. And its new draft national security management list could restrict foreign access to Chinese technologies. Finally, of course, China's new and as yet unpublished unreliable entity list could punish individuals, enterprises, and companies who are quote unquote harming China's economic interests. All of these policies are founded in national security considerations. So fundamental to a discussion today about the increase in restrictions to trade, investment, and finance flows is an acknowledgement that many of these tools being used here in DC by the administration and by Congress are meant to protect our military's advantages and our economy's competitiveness vis-a-vis China, especially in the areas of technology and investment. And while there's no getting around that there's a rise in true national security-based threats that need to be addressed, through some restrictions on trade, investment, and finance flows. 
It's important that this discussion include how to quote unquote right size the threats that we face. China's having a host of strategic security implications on our future relationship with it due to the policies it is taking. And of course, for the United States, the implications are not just set in relation to US-China relations, but US relations to the entire region. So for example, in my world of commercial issues, this more restrictive US and Chinese trade, export controls, procurement restrictions, investment review procedures, they all together increase supply chain uncertainty and incur costs for American companies with the potential to damage the US economy and competitiveness of American companies on the global stage. Today's conversation on these trends is not just about US-China competition. China's investment and financing mechanisms being deployed through its still hard to define Belt and Road Initiative, the impact of a slowing Chinese economy on the rest of Asia, and of course, China's own national security ambitions and goals, all of these touch on trade investment and finance policy and encompass much more than a focus today in Washington, DC on President Trump confirming that he will meet with President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20 in two weeks from now. Even more broadly, struggles with the adverse effects of globalization and increased protectionism around the world, as well as the emergence of a US absent CPTPP are also realities that shape the future of American engagement in Asia. And we have three experts here who are going to dive into elements of all of these trends. Starting from the big picture and then moving to more specifics, first up, we will hear from Thomas X. Hamas, Distinguished Research Fellow at NDU. Having retired from active duty after 30 years of service in the US Marine Corps and holding degrees from the US Naval Academy and Oxford, Dr. Hamas's many areas of expertise include future conflict, military strategy, and insurgency. And today, he will talk about the reverse in globalization trends that impact us all. Then we will hear from Claire Reed of Arnold and Porter and senior associate with the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She will discuss China-US trade and investment developments, bring us up to date on what we can expect going forward and how it will impact the region. Mentor, friend, former colleague, Claire and I first met after she had already served as a senior international trade partner at Arnold and Porter, and she was the first chief counsel for China trade enforcement at the office of the US trade representative. She subsequently served as the assistant US trade representative for China policy for six years, leading our trade and investment discussions with the Chinese government, as well as with authorities in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Mongolia. Finally, we will hear from an NARP fellow, Dr. Michael Beckley, currently assistant professor of political science at Tufts, who will discuss possible Chinese economic stagnation and how that could affect China's security policy. Like Claire and TX, Dr. Beckley is no stranger to Washington, DC, having worked at the US Department of Defense as well as RAND and the Carnegie Endowment. His research focuses on China's rise, and he holds a PhD from Columbia University. What a treat to have your combined expertise today. Each speaker will talk for 10 to 12 minutes, and then we're going to open it up for discussion. I know I personally am going to be interested to hear from all three of you whether these current trends are reversible in the future. Turn it over to TX. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for the kind introduction. And uh, it's kind of a bad news, good news thing. The bad news is you're going to have to listen to a Marine infantryman with a degree in history talk about economics, so that could be a little <laughs> iffy. But the good news is I'm an old guy, so I know I'm between you and the bar, so we'll keep it short. <laughs> I looked at fourth industrial revolution over the last four years, and what I've discovered is that about since 2011, there have been indicators of deglobalization taking place. 
Now, the fourth industrial revolution is defined by Klaus Schwab as new technologies fusing physical, digital, and biological worlds, impacting all disciplines, economies, and industries. So I first started looking at it from a warfare point of view and then expanded it and looked at the indicator, the first indicator I saw, you've got a chart on your desk, hopefully you're sitting next to a young scholar so you can actually read it. <laughs> um, the total trade is a percent of GDP. You notice that it got China, the US, and the world on there. And what you see is a steady increase until 2007, the crisis, a sudden dip, 2008, and then a very rapid recovery up to 2011. And I use total or GDP trade as a percent of GDP as a measure for international trade, as a measure for how much of your economy is dependent upon globalization. But then in 2011, you see it start to decrease. And it decreases steadily until right at 2017. And there are some indicators that the blip in 2017 was an effort to beat the tariffs. Because there's a huge increase in the movement of goods as people stock up their inventory before the tariffs take up. So I think actually taking that out, you've still got a decline. The second slide shows merchandise trade as a percent of GDP, and you see that blip from the sudden buying to beat the inventory. Your third slide, global financial flows, is interesting. This was done by real economists, so I couldn't extend it out to 2017, but you'll see the huge amount of global financial flows up through 2007, and then it dies very, very suddenly, rapidly with the crash, but it doesn't recover. Unlike total trade, it doesn't recover. It stays low until 2014. You're still seeing it fairly low, in fact, about a fifth of what it was before. Now, that current, when I get to current FDI trends, is not as total as global financial flows, but using foreign direct investment as a measure of how much confidence I have that international trade will continue, you see that spike up in 15 and then drop off. Again, when the tariff conflicts start, the possibility of if I invest, am I going to be able to export from that country? Those sorts of questions. So financially, we're seeing that drop. The question is why? Why are we seeing deglobalization? Well, it's not new. It's happened repeatedly through history. What is different about this is normally it's political or security driven. For instance, the Smoot-Hawley tariffs in the 1930s crash everything. That's the political aspects. The security aspects, World War I, the world is more globalized in, in 1914. It will not reach that level of globalization until again, until the 1970s. That's how seriously World War crashed the thing. <clears throat> but that's the traditional way. What's different today is that I think two of the big things are technology, and I'll explain how that's changing it, energy production, which changes energy flow, and then social factors and political factors. The technology drivers, one of the most important is advanced manufacturing. Now, particularly 3D printing driven by task-specific artificial intelligence. For instance, supply chain, GE Europe tasked their 3D printing team to look at a small aircraft engine they had for a 10-passenger aircraft. It had 835 parts. The new one, which is 3D designed and printed, has 12. That's a complete collapse of that supply chain. There's no sub-assemblies assembled in Southeast Asia shipped to China for final assembly ship. They're just printing it on site. We'll see more and more of that. And it's not just one-offs. Maybelline has those little eyebrow brushes, the little plastic ones. They are printing a million a month out of a single facility in Southern California. So this is now a mass production tool and changes things a great deal. Also because of the energy, we'll talk about how that affects plastics. But robots are also having, industrial robots, everybody's familiar, the big ones bolted to the floor with a cage around them so they don't kill anybody. The cost of those is down to $7.50 an hour operating cost. Chinese labor is $14 an hour now. Now, what's interesting about that is China is the biggest buyer of industrial robots in the world. The next step is collaborative robots that work next to you, and they augment a human and sometimes replace. For instance, in the BMW plant, their workers are getting older, average age 48, so they can't lift the parts overhead. It used to be a two-person team. Somebody lifted the part in place, the next guy bolted it. The robot now lifts the parts in place, the other guy bolts it. But a collaborative robot won't crush you. It works with you. It's also reprogrammable by the operator, no special code and comes in at $20,000 a copy. So co labor cost about a buck an hour. They've got a single arm robot now that's $14,000 an hour. So those are coming. Social programs are changing services because they're doing the jobs here. Bookkeeping, answering telephones, phone banks, reprogramming computers, radiology, oncology, apprentice lawyers are all being done by software now. 
And finally, Sobots. And Sobots are going to be a massive impact on the third world because sewing has always been a very human skill, very difficult to do. But DARPA funded a program to teach robots to do this or make a machine do this because we have to buy uniforms from US providers. So they developed a machine now that can do jeans, t-shirts, hats, and shoes. So you get unique, customized shoes or shirts or pants. And they're beginning to, there are 20 of these production lines now in use in the United States. This is a huge problem for Vietnam. 67% of the women who work in Vietnam are in the, in the textile industry, over 80% of Bangladesh. And that may affect some things very, very seriously. The key thing is the cost of labor advantage is disappearing. So production is re returning to home markets. And we actually saw that. There are other drivers of that. Socially, environmental concerns, people want the local war movement, the local production movement likes this idea that it was made down the road. Mass customization, people, hey, if I can have shoes made just for my feet, I'd rather have them if they're roughly the same cost. And we're getting there. And then the speed of shift to new products, you can very, very rapidly change what you're doing. Political, of course, populism, we saw it in the last election. We see it in all the elections in Europe. Populism driving protectionism is changing it. And then interesting, the internet, the one thing that was going to unify the world. And man, nobody can stop this thing. It's going to make everything. The signal will get through. But China disagrees. <laughs> and between the great firewall, the great cannon, and social score, they're successfully cutting China out of the internet for things they don't want them to see. Russia's subcontracting with the Chinese. The Iranians are subcontracting. Authoritarian governments all over the world are starting to do this. Then there's the impact of energy use. Now, we've got fracking. Everybody's familiar with the tremendous change fracking has made. It's interesting that with the news in the last couple of days of blowing up tankers in the Gulf, 20 years ago, we got these huge oil spike prices. We're up a buck or something today. Mm -hmm. So it's no big deal because we're the swing producer. But just as important for deglobalization, all of the plastics and petroleum product plants were moving out of the United States because natural gas was the precursor and too expensive. With fracking, natural gas in the United States is now the cheapest in the world, and they've moved back. We dig up the petroleum here. We process it to plastic here. We use it here. That completely changes the supply plane for an enormous number of petroleum-based products. And then renewables. Two years ago, 68% of all newly installed energy in the United States were renewables. By 2035, 50% of the planet is supposed to be using renewables. So that changes things because renewables are inherently local. You don't produce wind energy in America and sell it to China, despite China's odd fantasy about this global network. So what's the economic impact of IR? Well, greater global prosperity. We're going to have more stuff, faster, more suited to us, with less waste and cheaper as we learn the energy pieces. The problem is there's going to be initially greater economic disparity. This has happened with each of the industrial revolutions. There are losers and people left behind. And that is part of the problem we saw with the last election and the discontent in large parts of America and Europe. But the other thing we're going to see is a reduction of globalization, not so much total deglobalization as regionalization of economies. North America is already pretty regionalized. 84% of the US economy GDP comes from America, Mexico, or Canada, only 16% from the rest of the planet. And that is going down each year because of uh, this. Europe and Asia are trading blocks already. Europe, by DHL standards, is the most globalized economy in the world. But you dig into their numbers and you find out, oh yeah, but 70% of it's traded in the core of Europe. They just moved it 50 miles and crossed two borders. So that counts as international trade. Asia is becoming a block around China. That means premature deindustrialization for Southeast Asia, Africa, the Middle East. They don't have that step the tigers have taken from light industry to medium to heavy. That's going to be a huge problem because these are the people reaching youth bulge at exactly the time the jobs they needed are going away. They're going to be replaced by robots. And the security impact, one of the things that worries me is the U.S. will be more reluctant to engage for a number of reasons. First off, traditionally, if you scratch an American very hard, you usually find an isolationist. The second is the increasing in independence. Why do I need to go out in the world? Americans would really be in a kerfuffle 20 years ago about the Middle East. Right now, their reaction is, oh, well, that's their problem, not our problem. In fact, the president has said that on television. Mm -hmm. The cost and bad experience of, of interventions were 19 years or 18 years into the Afghan adventure. Spent trillions of dollars, don't seem to have gotten anything out of it. That's just going to get a lot worse. Debt and then more Mr. Trump's outlook. The key concern is alliances are under strain already. This is going to multiply the strain on the alliances. And if you're a believer in international alliances, and I am, we're going to have to work hard to overcome these things. And with that, I'll leave it.
Claire. Well, that was really an upbeat <laughs> assessment <laughs> of what the challenges are. We have no challenges looking, looking ahead. Well, so then if we take a look at the trade and investment environment with China and the United States, we don't get a rosier picture. I think that we are going to be seeing a much more complex and constrained environment on the trade and investment side of the equation with, with the U.S. and China. And I think we're going to see more uncertainty for the next several years caused by markedly less trust, by more rigid defensive policies taken by the United States, by the Trump-created policy uncertainties and scapegoating, frankly, by retaliation on the Chinese side. And Amy mentioned some mirror measures that China has already taken, plus the effects, frankly, of President Xi's governing approach, and then the efforts by both sides to win allies and create you know, more strength for each side of what is beginning to look like a pretty restive relationship. So let's break this down. So first, I do think, and I think there's been a lot of discussion about this today, that there has been a significant and likely permanent change in the degree of U.S. skepticism about China's trajectory in terms of its development, as well as the consistency of its goals with a stable and open international trade and investment system. So why? Well, some of this has to do with Xi Jinping and his China. He's clearly turned away from the 2013 Third Plenum with the market-oriented messages. He's clearly pushing to consolidate and strengthen his state-owned enterprises. He's doubling down on government intervention in the economy, both at the micro level and at the macro level. And his concern about Communist Party control is translating into controls inside companies, as well as the social controls that TX just mentioned. There is this increasingly nationalist message that is not only creating a political environment, but also is having an impact in the economy, including making foreigners feel increasingly like the reason they're inside China is so that their advantages and know-how can be infused into the Chinese DNA, and then the foreigner can be discarded. And there's a focus, clear focus, on getting Chinese entities into the global markets, into a globally strong position, but at the same time keeping China's market closed as much as possible. So in short, Xi's China does not seem to be buying into at all the classic liberal market economy or the goal of we're going to have win-win with open trade. In, by the way, it's very clear, has been clear to me for the years that I've dealt with China, China does not have a culture of rule of law like many other economies do. And that's really fundamental. So rule of law is useful to China in the context of international agreements where a little bit of compliance on their side gives them an opportunity to have very open opportunities by virtue of other countries having to comply on their side. So when the balance of cost and benefit is right, then the rule of law or the global trading system becomes something that, that is defended vigorously. But on balance, I would say, I think fundamentally China has a zero-sum game mentality and has a sense of needing to have a drive to do whatever it takes to get the advantage and to win. And you know, in this context, of course, economic development is critical to Xi Jinping and his maintenance of control because for all of the efforts to eradicate corruption inside the, the Communist Party, for the ordinary Chinese person, it's really going to be, is my life getting better? That's going to be a metric for whether things are going to be considered to be going well or not. And given that China right now is behind other economic powers, I think there is a very urgent drive inside China to catch up and to take its rightful place in the center of the universe, right? China, the word for China, Zhong is center, right? So that's something that is also, I think, in the DNA. And that then serves to justify the aggressive actions on intellectual property, the aggressive technology transfer pressures, trying to leapfrog ahead to get to where they need to be, and also the kinds of actions being taken opportunistically with smaller economies, particularly around Asia, but also in Latin America and Africa, in terms of trying to build those opportunities to develop strength. Now, it's not all on the China side. Of course, on the US side, 
some of the baseline change has to do with the adverse and sort of increasingly grinding problems that foreign companies are feeling in terms of their interactions with China. It's always been challenging. And in some cases, you know, in the 1960s or 70s, if you talk to people who were in China at that time, super challenging at that time. But now the environment is challenging again and the frictions are increasing again and that sense of never, ever, ever being Chinese and never, ever, ever being equal is coming to the fore in many subtle ways for companies. But of course, the Trump administration has now taken this and made this headlines. So the aggressive calling out of troubling Chinese policies by the administration, some say, would have happened in some form if Hillary Clinton had been president, given where the trends were going. But the lack of strategy and that Trump scapegoating because of the political gains that you get from identifying an enemy and then pounding that enemy, that's a political calculus that he's making, a domestic political calculus. His instinctive use of tariffs as opposed to a strategic plan, you know, his, his punching allies in the nose when, it feels, when he feels like it, those kinds of really disruptive behaviors create a lot of unpredictability and uncertainty and then because trust matters in the international system, it creates disruptions and uncertainties in the global economy and potentially dangerous broader problems. So it's a very, very risky approach and the question nobody knows is for Trump, is this long-term or short-term? But it's, it's problematic. Now, but it's not just Trump in the United States. At this point, if you go to the Congress and you say, how do you feel about China, you will find no one in Congress that would say anymore, be patient, China is moving towards our model, it takes time, there are steps forward, even though there are steps backwards. That was something you heard from certain quarters in, the Washington, in Washington, D.C. You do not hear that anymore. There is definitely a consensus, even though I would say there's a bell curve as to where people are, that steps have to be taken to assert and defend U.S. essential interests that have not been taken up till now. So what's happened in the last two years? Many different unprecedented U.S. policy moves, unprecedented in terms of how many and in what areas. So the National Security Investment Reviews that Amy talked about tightened and broadened significantly. The export controls now to be put on fundamental and emerging technologies, who knows what that means? What are you gonna do to be sure that that doesn't just cut off Americans from the global mind-brain chain? How are you gonna make that balance? Sanctions, trade actions of every single type. They took our international trade roster of statutes and dumped the entire thing out on the table, and I swear to God, they've used almost every single one, ones that I, that I knew about only theoretically. They are now using. They've revoked licenses of Chinese entities, and they've also refused to give licenses to Chinese entities to operate inside the United States. You know the discussion of visas for students, for, for scientists, for professionals and these investigations and limits on collaborations that exist in the scientific arena in academia and with governments, things that and often are very long-standing. Now let me just step back for a second and say there is a bell curve of views inside the United States. Some U.S. economic operators, and I would say particularly people who are sophisticated business people with a global perspective, are uncomfortable with a lot of what China is doing, but they see globalization as inevitable, and they see China's market as irresistible, and they see that there has to be, in their view, a way forward where you can cabin in the interaction where you have essential security interests to protect them, but that you should be trying to work towards positive economic gains for all sides. At the other end, of course, there's a serious concerns that some people have about security risks. And then that can be translated into seeing a security risk in every single economic interaction. 
or most of them. And actually, China itself and its national security law actually creates this same problem. I mean, I think you could have a ballet school in China, and a foreign investment in a ballet school in China could create a national security problem in China under the language of the Chinese statute. But the United States is tending, some are tending in that direction. And that's, I think, potentially problematic, even though we know that there are problems with excess capacity, with non-market behaviors that are very structural in the Chinese economy that are actually really creating major, major victims inside the rest of the world where you have market economy forces that do force your company out of business. So there are very serious concerns, for sure. And then I think the most dangerous place is now this extreme, where you worry about there being a new McCarthyism, a red scare, a kind of extreme racist almost response, where you are then creating a lack of trust and an adverse environment that I think is very troubling for America and for our capacity to operate inside the world. It's also unrealistic, frankly, unless the United States decides to develop a top-down industrial strategy that controls every corporation in America, that you are going to keep American business from interacting with Chinese business. It's just not going to happen. And it's very hard to say that. And it's very hard to say that China has actually made advances in some areas on its own by its own intelligence and good practice. It's very hard to say that now in the American environment. Now, this change in attitude is going to be important for this deglobalization that TX was talking about because it's not just happening in the United States. It's also happening in Europe and other parts of the world to a certain extent. So the caution and that skepticism about what China wants and how it's going about it and what kinds of problems that's going to pose for the rest of the world, I think is real. OK, so what's going to happen? What's going to happen in the trade, in the trade problems that the US now has? What's going to happen in this whole next set of possible tariffs on $300 billion of US goods that are produced in China? I think I'm going to give you a very cynical view. I think for Trump, it's going to depend on his base and the stock market, OK? So on one, one scenario is that if he can do it, because it's in some ways the lowest cost, he actually drags all of this out all the way up until just before the 2020 election when he can drop a great deal and no one will have time to be able to measure how great the deal is. Very low risk then from the political perspective, tough on China, solves the China problem, and sweeps into the election. However, if the stock market or his base or the threat of a recession, the Fed, any of the rest of this create a crimp in that style, then I will say he'll move faster and try to get a truce. For China, I think they really would prefer not to have a fight with the United States. They don't need it. They have a lot of economic challenges they need to be addressing. And the contagion of this US skepticism into the other parts of the global trading system is not good for them. They don't like it. Export controls, investment security, even the Huawei situation, even though there hasn't been a, you know, a, a blind adherence to the US view, I think it's still making a difference. Now, I'm just going to put into the equation right here one small wild card. I have heard that there's a sense that Xi Jinping does not always listen to his own advisors, that there is a tiny bit of Trump in him, and that he's not particularly sophisticated economically. And that creates uncertainties in the Chinese side in terms of Chinese policy, which creates another type of unpredictability. And the one crumb that is for me, just keeps, you know, irritating me, and is and I can't get it out of my head. Is the fact that the breakdown in trade talks is extremely odd if you look at it from my perspective as a China negotiator, and Amy may feel the same way. They said that the talks broke down because China, at the very last minute, crossed out all the references in the draft agreement to the idea that China, the promise that China had in there, that they would change their laws in order to accomplish certain goals. Well, I'm telling you, there is no way that Xi Jinping did not know that that was in there. 
And there is no way, when you have a regular negotiation with China, if you try to push on them the idea that they need to change their law and promise it to you, the lowest level Chinese official, boom, reflexively will say to you, we cannot do that. The National People's Congress is an independent entity, and we have no control over them. You in America, in the administration, cannot say that you will change a law because you have a Congress. We have the same system in China. Now, we know they don't have the same system in China, but I, there, it was an orthodoxy. There, it happened every time. So there's no way that Liu He, when he was doing his negotiations, and then when he brought them up to Xi Jinping, there's no way that there wasn't high-level clearance to put that language in. So the fact that the language all of a sudden dropped out over a weekend with a massively redacted you know, and edited text, that means that something happened, and it, I, the only thing that makes any sense to me is that Xi Jinping finally previewed it with like the senior, senior leaders, the old ones, and they went nuts, and then he threw Liu He under the bus and said, mm, we can't possibly do that. You got then the three principles that you can't ask China to change the law, and everything broke down as a result of that. What does that say? That says to me that Xi Jinping, if that's true, that there is an issue about that sort of traditional sense of China being extremely strategic and conservative and careful in how it runs its policy. Okay, so that's a long story, but it does worry me in terms of the uncertainties. So could we get to yes? Yes. We, we might, but... If we do, it's going to take the United States realizing that there is a limit to the U.S. leverage, that China does not need the U.S. existentially. Only 12% of their exports go to the United States. And so we're going to have to be realistic on our side because China is not going to change any fundamentals in order to get a deal with us. That's a great way to lead into Michael's. What if really China's economic slowing does happen? Okay, well, thank you for the introduction, Amy. I'm sad to say I'm gonna echo the pessimistic conclusion we seem to be selling here on the panel of doom. The basic conclusion I come to is that China's growth is probably gonna slow dramatically over the next decade, and it's probably gonna make US-China conflict more rather than less likely. And I think it's relevant to the preceding discussion because I think there's sort of an assumption among a lot of U.S. policymakers, that if we can just hit China hard enough economically and really impose some serious pain, that they'll eventually blink first and cave to U.S. demands. And I used to think that was the case, but after studying this issue, I'm not so sure that that is the case. So the first point, and really the motivation of the study, is that Chinese stagnation isn't a remote possibility. So I've looked historically, and no country has had China's current level of debt or its negative productivity growth or the rapid aging that's about to kick into effect without suffering a lost decade, or at least several lost decades, of sluggish economic growth. So that then begs the question, what would China do under these kind of conditions? And in the study, I look at history, first of all, and analyze every case over the past couple hundred years where a rapidly rising great power has then suffered a prolonged growth slowdown, and then I apply lessons learned from that history to China today. There's three basic findings, and as I mentioned, all of them are pretty pessimistic. They all suggest that China would actually become more assertive and expansionist if its economy stagnates. So the first finding is that mercantilist expansion seems to be the historical norm. So nearly all of the rising powers that stagnated over the last couple hundred years tried to rejuvenate their economies through protectionism at home and also by trying to carve out exclusive economic spheres abroad. So basically, they tried to offset their domestic economic problems by taking market share, by trying to seize resources, by trying to open up strategic buffers around them. And the first thing I did when I started researching this topic was just make a list of every great power that has ever grown at or above 4% for at least 10 years, followed by another 10-year period where growth fell by at least 50% or more. And the list was, was basically a who's who of big-time expansionists that you're all pretty familiar with. So obviously there are extreme examples like Germany and Japan in the 1930s, the Soviets in the 1970s, the Americans in the 1890s after a series of depressions in the 1870s and 1880s, Russia in the 2010s. So the bottom line I take from this history is that rising powers generally don't mellow out when they hit a prolonged economic rough patch. They tend to go out and often rapaciously so. The second finding is that China seems to be a moderate to maybe even a high-risk 
case. History shows there's two main factors that affect the likelihood that a stagnating power will then resort to mercantilist expansion to solve their economic problems. China already scores highly by one of these factors, and its score on the other is sort of rising. Um, so, so the first factor that seems to matter a lot, and the one that China already scores highly by, is the degree of state capitalism, as the state ownership and state intervention in the economy. Because if the government has a direct stake in the survival of major firms, and if major firms have substantial influence in the government, then the state is more inclined and more capable of marshalling national resources to push abroad to try to expand market share when profits and employment start to dry up at home. State capitalist regimes are also less likely to reform and open in the face of stagnation because doing so would disrupt the patronage networks that the regime depends on for survival. The second risk factor is the level of openness in the global economy. How open are foreign markets? How secure are sea lanes? If the global economy is open, then you can potentially rejuvenate your economy by just, you know, through reform and opening. But if the global economy is closed, then you may have to physically push your way into markets and try to secure access to resources. So over the past two centuries, many of the most aggressive expanders were authoritarian state capitalists that suffered stagnation during periods of low global economic openness. Today, China is, by any measure, an authoritarian state capitalist country. And while the global economy is still relatively open, in fact, fantastically open by historical standards, the trade war that we're all talking about here might be closing it in ways that threaten China's long-term economic prospects. So China looks like a risky case. The third binding is that China, to my mind, is already sort of going down this, this historical pattern. So since 2008, China's growth rates have fallen by more than half. Productivity has been negative for a decade. Debt has quadrupled. And in response, the regime has basically gone out on a large scale. So it's quadrupled outbound investment, largely as a way to stimulate demand for Chinese goods and to capture raw materials. Then to protect those investments, China's also gone out militarily. So it's tripled its procurement of long-range naval ships. It's quadrupled its port calls. It's quintupled its slock patrols. It's been, of course, militarizing features. And it's increased its use of coercive maritime actions. So those are like physical interventions to bully other neighbors um, by, according to some data sets, sevenfold just in the last 10 years alone. Now, the standard narrative is that all of this assertiveness actually stems from China's growing power and confidence, so rising power, rising ambitions. But the fact that the assertiveness correlates with a serious economic slowdown, as well as a rise in societal unrest and government repression in China, makes me think that the reality is actually a little bit more complicated. So China has certainly become more cocky and well-armed abroad, I think it's fair to say, over the past decade. But it's also become increasingly insecure at home. So it's this dangerous combination. And that's because for the first time in more than a generation, the Chinese Communist Party is facing a sustained drop in growth year after year of lower and lower growth rates. China has had lots of short-term recessions in the past, since 1979, but it always found a way to sort of stimulate its way out of them. Now stimulus is not working. So since 2008, China has been rolling out an Obama-sized credit package every three to four months, and yet growth continues to decline, so to no avail. So there aren't really any clear domestic remedies to China's economic problems, and that then may generate incentives for China to go abroad, to pad profits, to maintain employment, to lock down raw materials. And so my research suggests that these incentives at least partially explain China's assertiveness and expansion over the past decade. And I worry that this pattern could be just a preview of what is to come if China's economy slows further in the years ahead and the CCP is, is further pressured. So what does this mean for US policy? I think, number one, I think it means we need to prepare for prolonged competition with China, as much as I hate to say it. It seems like China could continue to expand even if, it's, even if it stops rising economically. Because at the end of the day, the CCP prioritizes regime security. That security requires growth and employment. That growth and employment increasingly requires privileged economic access abroad as the domestic drivers of growth dry up. And unfortunately, that means there's probably no grand bargain to be had between the United States and China because the two countries' economic spheres of influence overlap in key areas and put them on opposite sides of thorny disputes over not just territory, but also, of course, the, the economic rules of the road. I think the results also mean it's going to be difficult for the United States to browbeat China into making serious structural economic reforms because it's just really hard to see how the Communist Party could liberalize 
economically in a serious way without jeopardizing its political control and all those patronage networks it depends on. So I think we're probably in for sustained rivalry even if China stagnates, even if China's growth slows. And so we need to get ready to deal with the knock-on effects of that competition. So some of them have been mentioned already, things like decoupled supply chains, militarized sea lanes, a a splintered internet. And so this means a, a big chunk of U.S. foreign policy is gonna have to be taken up by cost mitigation finding ways to develop supply chains that aren't critically dependent on Chinese components, unless 3D printing comes along and you know, saves us all. Defense concepts that can blunt Chinese gray zone activities but don't trigger some horrible military escalation. And then domestic redistribution mechanisms that will soften the blow to people that I think are going to be frankly put out of business by the economic reshuffle that's going to take place. So that's the first implication. The second implication, and the shorter one, is I think these results don't just imply that there's going to be U.S.-China competition, but it also complicates how the United States should compete with China. Because if if we knew that China would just retrench if its economy slowed, then I think U.S. foreign policy would be relatively simple. You could compel Chinese concessions by trying to choke China's economy and constraining its influence at every opportunity. But the historical records suggest that things aren't that simple. I mean, as much as we fear a rising, confident China, I think there's also reason to fear a sluggish, flailing China. And so U.S. policy needs some, uh, a balance between deterrence and reassurance. It can't just be competition all the way across the board. And that, in turn, requires a clear delineation between issues that are vital to U.S. interests, where we actually need to confront China head-on, versus areas where Chinese activities can be safely ignored, and then areas where actually the United States should be encouraging Chinese assertiveness and involvement. So something like Belt and Road. I was really struck today by Joel Wolfnow's presentation where he started off and saying, look, we shouldn't be looking at this thing in a comprehensive sense. We should, and opposing it wholesale, we need to break it into discrete policies, some of which should be supported while others should be contested. So obviously there's there's already great research by people in this room on these types of questions, and we're going to need more in the years ahead. So I guess I'll conclude by saying I'm under no illusions that any of these implications or the mixed approach, this sort of modified engagement policy would seriously alleviate the U.S.-China rivalry but I guess I just hope it can reduce tensions enough to prevent a further slide towards something you know, approaching a cold or a hot war. So on that happy note, turn it over to questions. Thank you. I'm going to try to find a silver lining here. Uh, so we've, we've spoken a lot about trends, whether they're global or they're bilateral, that point to decoupling and increased tension and maybe reversal of open trade and investment policies. But... Is there another way for the United States taking China out of the equation in Asia? So my hopeful question to the three of you, is there a way for the United States to out-open China in the region, rejoin CPTPP, and be a leader in the 21st century and reverse some of these trends that we're seeing where we ourselves are being more protectionist and close, or our global trends, as well as what's happening domestically, going to prevent that from happening? Well, TX said if you scratch an American, you get an isolationist. Mm -hmm. And that's the political problem that we have in the United States in terms of getting into trade deals. You know, I mean, there's a lot of discussion of the unfortunate fact that TPP didn't make it in the Trump administration. But I think there's many who would say that if Clinton had gotten in, I think she'd pledged not to support it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a tough sell for this American mentality that TX was talking about. I mean, I think it might be possible under another administration. I don't see it happening anytime here. And meanwhile, China's trying to join, right? So which would be a great political coup if they could make that happen. What do you think? I would love to propose some positive sum remedies. <laughs> um, I, I think right now, just the political trends in the United States make that very difficult and very unpalatable. But there, I think there are coercive measures that aren't nearly as hostile as the ones that the administration are taking that should at least be tried. So one that I've seen, and I'll defer to Claire on this because you're the WTO expert, but um, people proposed a big comprehensive case at the WTO that really marshals. I mean, everyone rips on the WTO as if it doesn't already have statutes against a lot of the things that China is doing illegally. But the US, EU, and Japan have already documented China's violations of a lot of these rules. And people say, if you brought this giant class action lawsuit that you could then marshal multilateral pressure, which would then 
force China into a difficult choice on the trade issue. On the tech issue, you know, it seems like the U.S. does is going to need to protect its IP, but that there are ways to do this in a much more targeted fashion than CFIUS is currently allotted to do work. It, it seems like it can essentially nix any kind of technology agreement that involves China. My, my students are actually part of this battle, so they, they've been trying to backtrack companies, Chinese entities that are linked to either the Ministry of State Security or the PLA so that they can be blacklisted, essentially. And so if you can actually do that kind of research and scale it up and combine this with, of course, the classified intelligence reports, you could then generate these more tailored lists of specific Chinese entities that need to be targeted rather than this sort of wholesale ban that gets into the kind of red scare fears that you talked about before. I think I can bring a little bit of good news. I think the fourth industrial revolution is going to favor the United States very heavily. We're extremely well positioned to take advantage of it. Until two years ago, we were also rated as the best place in the world to do business. The tariffs and things have bumped us back some. But in 15 and 16, there was record foreign direct investment in the United States, over $400 billion a year, and 70% was in the manufacturing. Get close to the market you're going to work in. So there's real potential for the U.S. to do extremely well here and advance quickly in these technologies. That then gives us the opportunity to offer allies while we're not going to buy a lot of their material, we can offer them the technologies that allow them to produce for the local market. So while there never be a tiger in, you get to be a tiger by selling to the world, you can certainly do better by selling to yourself. Much like Africa leapt over the wired phone system by going to cell phones. Mm -hmm. There are people who are developing 3D printers that are solar powered. So you'll no longer import cheap things from China, you'll make cheap things in your, in your own village. And I think there's a path we can take to reassure, and then on the military side, there's a whole bunch of things we can do to reassure our allies and uh, make China pause. Because much like the 1980s movie War Games, the only way to win this game is not play. The only way to win a war with China is not get in a war with China, because both sides are going to lose that one. So I think if we start looking at the technology and how we can then, on the commercial side and economic side, offer a lot of this. And it's not high technology stuff. I mean, everybody's doing 3D printing. Mm -hmm. Everybody's doing drones. Everybody's doing task-specific AI. The specific technology is hypervelocity, long-range weapons, nukes, things like that we keep. But the rest of it, we can be in a position to really share this in an honest way rather than in a Chinese process of, I'll share it with you if I get most of the benefit.